Hi, my name is Stephen Peck. I'm the founder and president of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. Welcome to our uh, fifth podcast in our series, the Sustainable Futures podcast series. And with me today is none other than Ed C. Snodgrass. He's the president and founder of Emery Knoll Farms and Green Roof Plants and North America's first nursery specializing in green roof plants and horticultural consulting. He's also a fifth generation farmer. His family was working the land back in the 1840s. Edmund has consulted on projects throughout the United States and also in England, France, Sweden, New Zealand, China, Australia, and even Morocco. Since its inception, Emery Knoll Farms has supplied plants for over 4,000 green roof projects throughout the United States and Canada. Edmund collaborates on green roof research with academic institutions, including Penn State University, the University of Melbourne, University of Maryland, University of Auckland, and Sheffield University in the UK. Edmund is also the co-author of Green Roof Plants, a resource uh, and plant guide, which is a seminal uh, piece of work in the green roof industry. The Green Roof Manual, a professional guide to design, installation, and maintenance, and small green roofs, the new uh, American landscape, leading voices on the future of sustainable gardening by Timber Press in 2012. Um, hi, Ed. Uh, thank you so much for making time for us today. Well, thank you, Stephen. It's really lovely to, to be with you. And uh, I guess we saw each other in the fall. It's nice to see you again. It's always great to see you, Ed. Um, I'm really uh, happy that you're going to be with us here to share uh, some of your insights. Um, you've been running your nursery, Emery Knoll Farms, and growing plants for green roofs for more than 20 years now. How did you get into this or what, what motivated you in those early days? Well, I have a, I'm a family farmer. And so uh, I was looking to go from commodity agriculture. We started with milk and then corn and soybeans and those kind of things into a more niche industry. And it's odd in the technological world when there's kind of a mature market in one part of the world and an emerging market in another. And so the green roof industry in Europe was pretty well established, but didn't really exist in the U.S. And so my thinking was, it's it, it's going to come here. Maybe I could get out in front of it and grow some plants for it. And I met you. I met Dave Beatty at Penn State. And so we had a couple of years without sales, but that time wasn't really wasted because we were getting our chops down a little bit. And then over time, it, it, you know, it grew and grew and, and allowed me to grow with the market. So you, you told me that you're a fifth generation farmer. Does that, I mean, is this genetically woven into your DNA, uh, working with the land? How, how does all that uh, play out? Yeah, I did. You know, it's something you kind of discover as you get older that um, growing up milking cows, when I think when the pandemic started and it was like that every day, kind of hunkering down, I said, oh, this is like milking cows every day. This is just like no one day is that hard, but stringing them together can be difficult. So I think I, you know, I, you know, was working on the farm before I was 10 years old and, and just it's, it is really baked in. I don't think you realize it in your twenties maybe, but as I've gotten older and, and as I have employees, you know, that are kind of, they kind of look at the clock at four 30 or five and I'm like, I don't notice a clock, you know? So I, I think it's, it, kids that grow up on farms have a very different time perspective, I think. So, yeah, I think it is. I think it's really 
in there. And I think as I've gotten older, I probably learned lessons about work before I was a teenager that I didn't even know I was learning. You know, people always make a complaint about millennials not having a, uh, a work ethic. It seems to me that uh, probably the hardest working people in our society are likely to be farmers. Would you sort of agree with that sentiment? Yeah, because you don't have a choice. You can, the thing that's unique about farming or fishing, I would say too, is that you can do everything right and, and nature can crush you. <laughs> Whereas, <laughs> Whereas I think a lot of jobs, if you do every, if you have a good business idea and do everything right, uh, you know, there's, there's a great chance of success. And uh, my last year commodity farming was my most efficient year ever. And the price of corn dropped from $4.25 to $1.25 in 48 hours. And that was the end of me being a corn farmer. So it's, it's that the market, the weather, it's just humbling. And I think you kind of grow up saying, you know, you, you just do the best you can and, and you live with the results. And I think the same for fishermen, you can go out and you can have all the best equipment and all the, and then just catch no fish, you know, that's, mm -hmm. or bring them to market and have no market, you know, or get nailed or get nailed by a storm while you're out. Get, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 There's so a, working, working with the weather is it creates a certain humility that I think is, um, um, really, um, really important. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's interesting that you, I know we met around 2002 in Ottawa. We had an event there at the National Research Council Institute for Research and Construction and Dave Beattie came up and you came up and I remember seeing you walk along the, uh, walk along the, um, the pathway there. And one of the things I remember is you bent down and picked up a piece of um, straw or grass or something. You know, and I thought, who is this guy and where did he come from? And yet you've, you know, you've been one of the preeminent leaders in, you know, the development of um, uh, technologies and processes for um, sedums and doing research on sedums, which are really important for vegetating rooftops, especially when there isn't a lot of loading capacity. And we have to put a very lightweight um, engineered growing medium up there and a root repellent layer and a drainage layer, and we use sedums a lot um, because they're really tough. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, your sedum production and why these plants are so darn good for, for green roofs? So yeah, for, for a certain geographic area, you know, the, the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic, uh, and a lot of Western Europe, sedums are really an ideal plant for thin assemblies, you know, under under 10 centimeters, I'd say. Um, and what they have biologically is really unique. So they can, they can essentially hold their breath. Imagine you're walking in the desert and you could cool yourself without sweating. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't be at risk of dehydrating. So the sedums can kind of do that. They, they close their pores during the day and then they open them at night and do their gas exchange. And that really conserves water. And then a certain group of sedums can actually flip that switch on and off. They call them facultative sedums. So when there's plenty of water, they will push water through their cells into the atmosphere at a very high rate. And when there's not water, they close that off and conserve it. 
So they're in a group of plants called succulents, which means they store water in their leaves or stems or roots. And uh, that makes them really efficient uh, in the green roof sense, because if a dead plant is on a roof, it performs no ecological functions. So the, the first requirement of a green roof plant is to survive summer, spring, fall, and winter. So that's, um, you know, that's, that's critical. Now there are some limitations, and I think people have been pushing the, the plant option envelope very correctly and rightly, but it comes with um, a different kind of care, you know, adding water, gardening, fertility, soil depth, if you want to expand the plant palette. But for, for putting up a green roof and kind of establishing it and leaving it alone as a stormwater facility, it's hard to beat a succulent plant. Now, as you get to other parts of the U.S., they, they decline in efficiency for other reasons. You know, the climate doesn't suit them. Too hot? Um, it's, it can be that. It could be uh, like in the southwest, it can be just not enough water to even uh, uh, support them. <clears throat> in the southeast, it's too humid. It's hot and humid. And so you need to move to other other species. And so that's where regional knowledge is really becoming critical because originally the green roof market followed the stormwater problem, which was in the places where that we had a lot of rain. And then the green roof market, you know, expanded into other areas of the country that didn't necessarily have stormwater as a main driver. So you you would look for for other things. And I think that's where, you know kind of we need to grow horticulturally is that there's one size does not fit all in, in a place as big as the North American continent. Right. We have a lot more climates uh, to deal with in North America than they do uh, in Europe where sedums are used um, quite, quite extensively. Um, so a sedum uh, in terms of sort of like linking that to something that people will know, um, I, I would imagine like a jade plant, right? Which is a very common household plant. It's a, it's a type of succulent. It has those big sort of beefy leaves. Mm -hmm. that, that's what sedums are like. They, they are, they're sort of, they have spongy sort of beefy leaves. They're not, they're not thin leaves or needle-like in their nature. Is that correct? Exactly. And their stems too. So stems and leaves both store water. I think this, the cactus and the South African plants, which is uh, what jade is, they, uh, they, only, they can only respire at night, whereas the sedums can flip their metabolism according to the conditions. So they're, they're succulent like those plants, but they're biologically much more flexible. Right. So they turn on or off their ability to photosynthesize, which obviously takes water out of their out of their bodies, depending right. on the climate, the, what's happening in the climate on a day to day basis. Right, exactly. Yeah. But yes, you're right in that that group of succulents are water storing plants. And that has a big advantage over a plant. So if you have a plant like um, like a black eyed Susan or you know, a, a begonia or something like that, as it gets hotter, they want to pump more water through their cells, just like you would if you were someplace hot. You would you sweat more when it's hot than when it's cool. And so, but 
they are sweating and then they're pulling that water out of the soil. At some point, the soil runs out of water and they can't sweat anymore. And so they just bake. And that's that's why plants die. They wilt first and then die. So right. by wilt by wilting, they're actually reducing their leaf area facing the sun. They're curling in. And uh, and so the succulents have an advantage is they go, I'm just hanging on to the water. I don't care what you're doing. You know. Yeah, yeah. They're they're very miserly with their use of water. And of course, on a on a lightweight, extensive green roof, there's not usually a lot of water to go around. Yeah. Well, I think that roofing in general, a a properly constructed green roof has to be a roof first. In other words, it, the water cannot accumulate in it because of, of all kinds of problems with that. So it drain, it has to drain pretty much like a regular roof. Once, once it holds all the water the soil can hold, that water needs to run through the green roof media to the drain. Otherwise it would accumulate and flow over the edge of the roof or, or get up into mechanical, you know, like air conditioning units. So you, the water, the, the soil is designed not to hold water once it's saturated. Whereas ground, so, ground soil is the opposite. It's gonna hold, you know, water or, my, or transfer it down to aquifers. So a green roof is a completely unique biology to grow in. It's unlike almost anything in the terrestrial world. So you um, you said a, a moment ago that um, we are we've learned a lot more about uh, sedums in different climates, um, and I know you've been conducting research with a whole range of different academic institutions around the world. Can you, can you describe some of those projects and why you're doing them? Uh, sure. Well, I, I'm I'm a curious person. That's why I do them. I like learning. I like being at the beginning of an industry. It it suits my personality. I'm kind of like a I'm more curious um, and um, pioneer. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I am a pioneer species. I'm, I'm, I would, I wouldn't do well in a mature market because I think that I need, I need that innovation as part of my personality. Um, so I think from, um, I've worked a good bit in Australia at the with the University of Melbourne, and I've, I helped teach a class there on green roof maintenance for a number of years. Uh, it fits well with me because my winter is their summer, so I can get down there. And they have, um, in their landscape, they always have a water budget because water is so precious there. So they were using groups of plants um, that we use minimal irrigation. And so we, they did a great thing. They, they built a green roof at the University of Melbourne with about a little over 200 varieties of plants. And they did soil depths from 10 centimeters to 30 centimeters. And then down the middle of the roof, the um, east side was non-irrigated and the west side was irrigated. So you got these, what would that be? Eight different zones of plants relative to irrigation and depth. And then you could look at species survival in each of those conditions. So you would have from 10 centimeters non-irrigated to 30 centimeters irrigated at the two ends of the spectrum. And then you could say to a developer, okay, do you want to, do you want the, you can, you can come at plant specification from one or two angles. You can say, what plants do you want to grow? And here's what you need to grow those. Or you can say, I only have 
so much loading. I only have 10 centimeters and I can't afford irrigation. And so you can drive the plant list by condition or by, by design. But either way you get to it, it's nice to have a local reference at a university that's, that's accumulating that data and recording it properly and using real horticulturists and real scientific methods to, um, to deliver that to the public. And so that's, that's a real gap in the market. There's places in the world to do that, but um, there's a lot of places that just, people are just figuring it out without academic institutions helping. So um, you're, you've been involved in that um, amazing plant research project? Were you, yeah, uh, since, since 2009, yeah. And it's still yeah. ongoing? Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is, uh, that's like the, uh, you know, the champagne of uh, plant research, it sounds mm. like. Yeah. And then, you know, Germany has Weinenstefaner, which is a whole green roof research center that's been doing it forever. And they test materials. And um, so there's places around the world that are setting this standard. Uh, and for whatever reason, the industry, whether it's not mature enough or there's not enough money or I don't know what, but for whatever reason, that does not exist in every eco region that has a green roof market. So I think there's a, there's a gap there, which was, a, which was a motivation for me to write the green roof plant book, which was maybe, maybe I can put together plants for different things. So in the back of the, you know, in the plant section of the book, there is a climate, you know, in a little table, what climate it's from, you know, what kind of soil depth you would need, when it blooms, you know, there was a lot of work that went into doing that. Uh, and, uh, and I look at it 15 years later and go, well, I could have done a better job, but I did the, be I did the best only job. Know, know yeah. then what you know now, right? Yeah. <laughs> maybe there's a version, maybe there's a version 2.0 coming out uh, soon, Ed, an yeah. upgraded plant uh, resource guide. Well, all those books have gone out of print now. So timber has stopped printing. So, yeah, I don't know that I have that work in me, but um, it it is it mm -hmm. would be nice. It, well, I think everybody. Um, well, let me put it more thirty thousand foot. Every industry, every industry benefits from the accumulation of experience and knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that uh, seems to be occurring is uh, you know, given the biodiversity crisis that we're facing and with the massive loss of insects and, and birds. And, you know, they're, they're saying there's a million species that are under threat right now of extinction around the world. Um, is the use of native plants on, on green roofs um, and, um, and that being an important thing that we need to do more, focus more on in the future. What, what are your thoughts about the whole native, non-native, you know, debate that's been going on and um, where you think we're headed on the native, non-native front? Yeah, I think that's a very important discussion, and I would, I would say it, it, it's even a subset of native. Uh, for example, if you could put up a native grass that that grows on a green roof, but many of those native grasses were associated with herbivory. They had an elk or a buffalo or a deer that was part of part of their life cycle. Uh, so it's not just native, and if you want to get into insect stuff. I mean, people around the world have the John Littles and Dusties and Stephen Pernison and uh, people in Australia. 
it's, it's more than just plants if you want to encourage insects. You have to have shelter. Robin Sincop in New Zealand has done really great work on that. There's a larval stage. There's a nectar stage, an eating stage. There's, there needs to be shelter because insects get predated upon by bird species. Uh, so there's nesting, there's shelter, there's, there's the adult food, there's the larval food. So you really got to think about an entire habitat, which is a very different set of problems to solve than saying, I'm going to put some soil and plants up for stormwater. And then the trick is, how do we, how do we layer these benefits one upon the other using the stormwater funding? Can we, can we add and aggregate the benefits of a number of different problems you know, while we're getting essentially funded by um, the stormwater thing, because I don't know if there's funding to do widespread native green, you know, insect habitat green roofs, but it would be nice. Um, but I, so I think, I think there's, there's a lot more than just plants there. Um, and uh, if you look in England, the most biodiverse place in England per square meter is an abandoned oil refinery. So it's, it's really about that insects can hide in places where nothing can get to them and people don't come. Whereas if you look at a place like Central Park, it's filled with people and people tromping around with cats and dogs and, and all, you know. So there's, the more things are, or like a, a soccer field or a, an athletic field, you can say, well, that's a green space. But what chance would an insect have with mowers going over it and large yeah. people, large people kicking balls around? So I think it's it's a more complicated discussion. And I think sometimes in the design world, they go, oh, we put up a bunch of natives and they kind of dust off their hands and say we're done. And I think it's a much more complex set of questions and, and uh, uh, it takes more rigor. Absolutely. I mean, I remember when we our first green roof demonstration project in 2003 at city and city hall, we had a plot that we wanted to demonstrate, um, you know, the restoration of the black Oak Savannah ecosystem. And we put a, you know, baby blue stems and black eyed Susans. We put a bunch of native plants into a, into about six inches of growing medium, but we didn't have any Oak trees, you know, and the Oaks are a fundamental part of the black Oak Savannah. And within a year to two years, the whole, all the plants had basically perished. So uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you're going to try to create habitat, um, you need to really think deeply about the needs of the creatures that you're, you're trying to, uh, mm -hmm. to bring to that particular um, place and not just toss up a bunch of native plants and think the job is done. I think there's a big opportunity that's underutilized on green roofs when uh, let's say you have a block in a city that's being redeveloped. And what typically happens is one company comes in and does the green roof specification and another company does it, comes in and does the, the street planting, the trees and the gardens, and they're not talking to each other. And so those, those trees could be specified to knit in with the plants on the roof. It's, it's a, there's a symbiosis there that's unrealized. And so rather than think about site design um, as a whole, you're, 
many times you're saying, okay, the green roof, the green roof becomes part of architecture and the at grade becomes landscape architecture, but they could really be, and even the water running off the roof, which may have nitrogen and phosphorus in it, especially if it's a growing vegetables, that, that water could be run through the landscape and that nitrogen and phosphorus could be used by trees. And, you know, there's, I know Elizabeth Fastman was working on that when she was at Stevens of capturing roof runoff and cleaning it. So as, as a farmer, we used to pay for nitrogen and phosphorus. So if it's running off a roof, it, one person's looking at it as a pollutant, but another person could be looking at it as an asset. Mm -hmm. So I think those kind of, those kind of things as we get better will knit together more. It's interesting that you uh, you talk about that because what you're really talking about is sort of design integration between the uh, the landscape and the roofscape and maybe even the wallscape from mm. the perspective of biodiversity. And I think we've certainly been making some headway in terms of just trying to do system integration, the green roof with the building or the green roof with the solar panels uh, or the green roof as part of an integrated or net zero water attempt to reduce and manage water more sustainably. But green roof system integration for biodiversity is definitely uh, a pioneering concept. We'll be right back after this short break with, uh, with Ed Snodgrass. Uh, don't go away. The Living Architecture Academy is an online learning platform dedicated to bringing you the best training courses, conference recordings, and more on green infrastructure, low-impact development, and sustainable design practices. To celebrate this holiday season, we're running a winter sale of 25% off all courses and recordings on the Living Architecture Academy from December the 1st to January 15th. Courses such as the Green Roof Professional Training Bundle, as well as our newly launched Biodiversity courses, Introduction to Biodiversity and Eco-Design, and Biodiverse Green Roof Maintenance can be purchased for the lowest prices of the year. All courses on the Academy are offered on demand, do not expire, and are approved for AIA, ASLA, and GRP Continuing Education, so you can learn at your own pace, on your own schedule, and earn CEUs. Visit livingarchitectureacademy.com and take advantage of the winter sale before it's over. Welcome back to the Sustainable Futures podcast. My name is Stephen Peck and with me today is Edmund C. Snodgrass, the president and founder of Emory Knoll Farms. We've been talking about uh, plants and biodiversity and green roofs and landscapes. Um, and uh, Ed, I'd like to... Um, have you think of maybe cast your uh, eyes back a little bit? We were just talking about some really um, innovative forward thinking ideas around design. What do you think has changed in the industry over the past 20 years or so? You've really been at it since the inception. What would you say the biggest changes uh, or innovations that have taken place have been? Well, I think the simplest way to state that is, you know, in 1999 or 2000, 2001, Advocates for green roofs had to go to designers, architects, landscape architects. They had to insert the green roof into that building plan. And I think right now it's, it's in the building plan and then it gets, it has to be, if it's not going to be there, it has to get taken out like for budgetary reasons or, you know, whatever, whatever reason. But I think almost every designer now, an architect that would do a building with a flat roof would say, we're gonna we're gonna put a green roof in the plan, and we'll see if it's uh, 
you know, if it can pass muster. So I think that's an indication that it's become a widespread uh, technology. And so I think that's a really positive sign. Mm -hmm. And how do you avoid, um, I mean, a lot of green roofs over the years, you know, they've been inserted into uh, new building plans and they often get like value engineered out, you know, budgets get tight. They're looking for things to uh, save money so they can continue to generate a profit. They go, oh, look at that green roof there. We don't have to spend that, you know, $300,000 or whatever it might be. How do you, how do you avoid that from happening yet? What, what, what can designers do to uh, um, avoid the, these, this green space being, you know, wiped out at the end of a project? Well, I think as, as in the industry matures, and this is a well-documented thing, it's part of research in the, what they call the technology adoption curve, that as things get done more, their, their unit price tends to go down. So what used to be $40 a square foot becomes $15 a square foot becomes $10 a square foot. So I think that as it's done more, uh, the capitalist kind of competitive nature of the market will drive the unit price down. So that's one side of it. And I think what we were talking about earlier, as we aggregate the benefits better, then uh, someone can say, okay, well, I've, I've, I've got this stormwater uh, money or I've got this stormwater requirement, whatever, jur- whatever the jurisdiction is, it's stick or carrot. And that gets me part of the way there. Now, what if I can tie it in with the landscape? What if I can market um, that we're going to increase songbirds or butterflies? Then there's a, it's not exactly financial, but it's good marketing. Uh, I remember we, we did supply plants for the Hilton in Baltimore and they weren't going to do a green roof. And, um, and then they had no other place to do stormwater. So they, you know, like many places, they, they ended up doing the green roof. And I remember going in there right when they opened, they already had a brochure at the front desk. Look how sustainable we are. We have a green roof. Mm -hmm. And so they, they obviously saw that as a value added thing to differentiate themselves to their customer. Mm-hmm. Come, come stay in a hotel that's a greener hotel rather than our competitor, which maybe doesn't have. So I think as those ancillary benefits come in, while they're not necessarily directly revenue producing or cost saving, I think as the public starts to be more discerning where they spend their money, you know, kind of vote with their wallet kind of thinking, you know, like people go to buy organic food at a higher price than they would non-organic food. It's that same kind of thinking that can push uh, green rooms. But I think the designers have to be good at presenting that at a reasonable cost. And then the building owners have to understand the, the, the value that may not be a direct cost benefit ratio but a differentiator in the marketplace. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, certainly a, a green roof that's visible is a very um, prominent way of saying, look how environmentally sustainable we are. Mm-hmm. Compared There's to like, low VOC paints or recycled tile yeah. carpeting or yeah. you know, a green roof yells, we're green, we're environmentally friendly. I think that I visited when I was doing photography for the second book, the, this library in Tacoma outside uh, Seattle, 
and it had a periscope that they put in. And so kids in the one section of the library could look at an actual kind of submarine periscope and look at the green roof. And I thought, what a brilliant thing, because a lot of times you don't see them. And I thought, we should just put that in the code, Stephen, a periscope, <laughs> periscope on. And I think there was a there was a office building in Germany that piped the water down through the middle of all the cubicles and made it clear like a plexus. And they could see that two days after the rain, the water was dripping through their office space. So I think there's ways to have the building participants understand the value with these kind of clever little design ideas. I think that's underutilized. Yeah, that's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty cool stuff. Um, and there's certainly a lot of benefit to going the extra mile and making a green roof accessible. <clears throat> a lot of building uh, owners uh, over the years we've talked to or in early days would say, yeah, we put a green roof on. We really made a mistake. We should have made, you know, an area where our staff could go up and have their lunches and spend outside in the, on the green roof. And they regretted not doing that. I remember doing a tour in Adelaide. Uh, and the first question every Australian asks is, where's the Barbie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Hey, um, at Emory uh, Knoll Farms, you've implemented a number of measures to basically walk the talk to improve your environmental, the environmental performance of your nursery operations. Would you share a few of those with us? Yeah, I think when I went from doing row crop farming, I really thought long and hard about my ecological footprint. And I studied up on this thing that was developed in Sweden called the natural step, which gives you some measurements of, of how you are doing things and not just what you're producing. And so we have used that framework to evaluate ourselves. And one of the first things we did is, uh, as which is unusual at a nursery at the time, was we never had a paper catalog. So uh, we had people call us up and go, no, I can't, I can't buy plants without a paper catalog. And we just held fast to that. Um, nurseries of our size probably mail out a ton and a half of paper catalogs a year. And uh, we've, we've always pumped all our water with solar. Uh, we use solar panels directly to uh, DC pumps. And so we've tried, we've tried over and over. We've, a couple of years ago, we spent a good bit of money on a, a steamer to do weed control to eliminate Roundup. So we're always looking at things and they have, to, they have to work within our system. We've had a couple kind of, uh, I, I, well, it's probably too harsh to say backward steps, but we had initially collected uh, fry oil from restaurants to do our greenhouse and office heat. And it was a total mess. <laughs> so we, we actually went back to, to heating oil because it was so, it was so hard to keep to get the boiler to run. We just didn't have the expertise to do that. And then- uh, and French people, fries, everything probably smelled like French fries too. <laughs> uh, it, it was, well, there, was, there were too many chunks of stuff in it and, it and it gets really thick in the cold weather. So it was a lot, of, it, it's just, it was two o'clock in the morning working on the boiler all the time. And um, so it wasn't, we weren't ready for that. And I think that's another, we didn't give up on it, but we just, we just didn't have, 
the kind of chops to uh, so you got you got to do what you can mm-hmm. and uh, and understand that you can't get too down if you try something and then it, the innovation is just not not there but kind of parallel with that it became a commodity that there were people were collecting so we used to get it for free and then people would come in and start buying it from the restaurant owner and then that kind of put us out of the equation we didn't want to buy it and treat it but anyway we were always looking for those things on the physical world but also on the social world we pay 100 in the US which is unusual we pay 100% of our employees healthcare costs so we just think that should be a basic human right to have healthcare and um, so there are there are some social things and some physical things we do mm-hmm. uh, and uh, since we're not we're not a publicly traded company we don't have to answer to wall street and you know we can we can be a little less profitable and and give people a good living and treat them well you know and have and have a nice environment for them to work in where they're not dressing up in a protective suit and spraying chemicals and insecticides and all those things now speaking of chemicals you mentioned um, a steamer <clears throat> using a steamer to try to control weeds. I, if I remember correctly, I saw a video of you doing that a couple of years ago. It's kind of like a vacuum cleaner almost, right? And how, how exactly does it work? So yeah, it's, it kind of looks a little bit like a vacuum cleaner. So it's a, it's about um, a four or 500 liter tank of water and it has a, it has a boiler. So just like a, so it creates steam, it's under pressure. So it's it's a good many degrees, probably in Celsius, maybe twenty or thirty degrees above boiling point, because it's because it's under pressure, and then it goes through uh, about a thirty meter long hose, so we can move around with it, and then it has a, a stainless steel hood, so you're you're pushing this saturated steam down on the weed. So I think the one the one hood we use is probably. 30 by 10 centimeters or something like that. And then you put that right on the weed and it's, it's just, it's very much like a, like a dry cleaners, that kind of steam. It's really, and so not only does it kill the weed, but it can also sterilize the weed seed that's there. So, so we have found over the two or three years we've been using it, that actually our weed pressure goes down. Whereas if you spray or use a torch or hand weed, that it doesn't affect the, the seed. So it's, it's actually, uh, the long, the more years you use it, the less weed pressure you have actually. And you can get right up to things. Uh, yeah, we made a little, uh, YouTube video that was really amateurish. Um, but, uh, was that's fun. what I saw. I think. Yeah. 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 What, what do you use to boil the, the water and create the steam? There's a, we have, it's part of, there's a boiler there on the, on the machine. Yeah. And then there's a, there's a pressure pump that, that does the pressure. So, so it's electrical pump. energy. It's a di- it's diesel boiler. Diesel. And there's and there's a gasoline pump that does the pressure side. It's a little unit. We bought it as a unit. Cool. There's a lot of um, small towns that are using it now for their parks because they don't have to put up all that uh, warning tape that they've just sprayed. Um, you know, so the public gets really wary. If you're mm-hmm. pushing a baby carriage to come in and say, well, because we, you have to notify the public when you spray any kind of pesticide. Right. So, so the, uh, by using steam, you can, uh, people could walk, 
walk right by it. There's, you know, it's just water vapor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In addition to all these uh, innovative ways you've been greening your operations, my understanding is you've also been rewilding much of the land under your stewardship. And there's been a lot of talk lately about, for example, vertical farms and um, agriculture, bringing integrating agriculture and buildings and trying to you know, develop technology so that we can grow more food in cities on buildings. And the idea being that we may be able to free up agricultural lands and rewild them, you know, again, giving back in, in a sense to, um, to nature and, and from, from an agricultural um, land use to you know, um, biodiverse uh, parkland. Can you tell us a little bit about your rewilding efforts and what that what that's involved and what kind of results you've been achieving yeah that's thanks for asking that's a really fun part of my life actually kind of growing up on this land and and uh, so we haven't used really any agricultural chemicals since 1983 so whatever that's oh that's gonna be 40 years this year right yeah right yeah so um I just visited in England, the Nep farm, which is about 20 years of rewilding. That's 3,200 acres of family farms. So I was really interested in talking with them. So the first, it's really interesting to watch a piece of land come back from that intensive commercial agriculture. And uh, I think some of the farm farmers around me said, well, you've taken the land out of production. That's not good. But what we've seen over time is now we're up to 137 bird species. We have plenty, plenty of butterflies and dragonflies and all kinds of solitary pollinators. And we manage invasive species as best we can. Uh, we do it on a very small budget because it's, it's pure expense. There's no revenue with it. But we have about 140 acres of either woodland or meadow, uh, probably put in about 5,000 trees but the squirrels are really outperforming me as a tree planter. They're so much better. Um, <laughs> they, for, they forget. They forget, but, but they can only move the species that are already there. And what I've done is bring in native species that um, used to be there that aren't there anymore. So that's how I outperform the squirrels. I'm bringing in new, new food for them and then they can take it from there. Uh, species that, that um, we can add back and, uh, and make the woods really diverse. And the meadows that I think that I, I talk with entomologists and ecologists and, and I think that what we're trying to do is have as many different forms of land use as possible. So we have gravel areas and sand areas and meadow, short grass, things that are, that are mowed close where so short grass species can get there. And then, um, uh, big sweeps of perennials of native perennials and woodland and edge. The, the intersection between the meadow and the forest is really vibrant. Uh, we put in seven vertical ponds, these little tiny seasonal waterways for insects. So we're just trying to like set the table and let nature um, be opportunistic. Um, so one of the things agriculture does is it makes everything one thing, you know, that uh, monocrop, monocultures. Yeah. yeah. So um, we're trying to do the opposite of that. Uh, and it's not a, it's not a huge piece of land, but it's, we feel like 
looking around its, its suburbs and its farmland, and there's this little oasis where maybe a bunch of insects can incubate, and then when conditions come more favorable, they can spread out a little bit. But we need those, we need those little areas where populations can be maintained because it's it's really, really depressing out there. And and you know, I don't think enough gets said about you know commercial lawn care for suburbs. It's just pretty toxic stuff, you know. So uh, we're trying to be that. And, and do it as an unfunded mandate. So we do it as best we can. A beacon of green hope in the middle of a suburban and agricultural landscape. Uh, stay with us folks. We'll be right back with uh, Ed Snodgrass in just a minute. 2023 is right around the corner and Green Roofs for Healthy Cities has some exciting things in the works. This year, we're reaching out to regional markets with a combination of virtual symposia and a Great Green North American tour, visiting five regions to connect with new partners, motivate local policy, and connect with professionals across the US and Canada. On top of that, we'll be continuing to build the reach of the all-digital Living Architecture Monitor magazine, working with researchers through the regional academic centers of excellence to foster new talent and emerging professionals, supporting our Green Roof professionals through events and outreach, and of course, connecting with thought leaders through the Sustainable Futures podcast. 2023 will be an exciting adventure, so be sure to join us along the way. Visit greenroofs.org for information on our upcoming events and programs and livingarchitecturemonitor.com for the latest industry news, interviews, case studies, and more. Hi, I'm Stephen Peck, and with me today is Ed Snodgrass, a, a fifth-generation farmer and pioneer uh, in terms of his nursery and work uh, uh, to develop uh, the green roof industry and rewild his uh, his own farm and turn it into a bio um, a bio reserve, really in in the middle of uh, Maryland. Um, Ed, we had a chat a while ago, and uh, you made a comment that really stuck with me. Um, you said that we really need to measure green roof installations in terms of their square miles rather than their square feet. And you you referenced the amount of land that was being developed in Maryland on a on a daily basis. What what do you mean by square miles in terms of square feet? I think the the, the big notion is that any solution has to map to the problem. So if, uh, for example, in your personal checking account. If you're spending $100 a day and depositing a penny a day, it's, it's your finances or your incomes out of scale with your expenses. So in terms of stormwater, uh, I'm in the Chesapeake Bay uh, watershed, and it goes almost to Canada, goes up into northern New York. So it's 64,000 square miles, and we're still losing close to 100 acres a day to impervious area. So um, now we're not the only green roof supplier by a long shot, but we just calculated, we did a, we've done since our beginning about 400 acres of green roof. So in 25 years, we have offset four days of impervious area. So it's, it's, we really need to, if we're going to be serious about these problems, we need to understand the macro measurements of the scale of the problem and the scale of the solution. And I think that there's a little bit of kind of green backpack, 
patting, you know, where you're like, oh, look how good we're doing because we're doing something, but we're not really measuring it correctly. Now, there are other stormwater solutions that are not green rooms. I'm not dismissing that, but I don't think the macro measurements are really um, outside some, some stormwater conferences. I mean, they're not widely known. Uh, and I think it gets back to your question about cost and where a developer can just say, well, I choose not to do it when, uh, what's the old saying from the, from the 80s, the, the, the capitalist part gets to socialize the cost and privatize the revenue. So companies got to, you know, like big companies got to pollute and then the government would clean up the pollution and they got the revenue. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the, the switch is that people who are, and this is, this is happening from a public policy point of view, certainly, if you're creating stormwater as a, as a landowner, maybe you should be responsible for that stormwater. And so it doesn't mean not to build housing or shopping centers or any of that, but we need to scale the solution set with the problem. And that's what I meant by where we go to conferences, we feel good about what we're doing. Everybody feels good. They go home all optimistic, which is good, but we're not, we're not near scaled to the, to the problem. Yeah. I mean, there's, I would agree, you know, we're certainly, there's a long way to go before we're at the point where we have a policy and an economic framework that, um, replaces the footprint of buildings and, and, uh, you know, from a biodiversity point of view, but also from a stormwater management point of view, although a lot, there are jurisdictions moving towards a net zero stormwater runoff for new development and they're baking that into the regulation. So I think we're, we may be on that path, Ed, towards sort of mm-hmm. scaling up this activity so that we can continue to, you know, build the buildings that we need and, uh, but do so in a way that's way more, uh, that where the social we don't have all the costs socialized that they're the costs and the benefits can be internalized um, but your point's really well taken we're certainly not where we need to be i think there's also an opportunity to use um, our engineering knowledge to actually make cities really very livable and and uh, very high performing you know because they are engineered environments if we really put our minds to it, I think we can, they're, they're never going to go back to being pre-development ecosystems, but we can really supercharge cities to be incredibly verdant and productive spaces. Mm-hmm. And we need to do that in order to build them up, right, rather than out. So rather right. than continuing to sprawl, and one of the attractive um, aspects of sprawl is being able to have your, you know, your backyard with your green space and and um, if we're going to get more people living in cities and try to contain sprawl, we certainly need to make them healthier places for people, right? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I was so impressed with the guy from the Audubon Society from New York at the conference in Philadelphia, the Green River Health and Cities Conference, and uh, that, that there are people thinking from a number of angles. So if you know if you can make a city attractive and and hospitable to migrating birds, then you have insect control, you have mosquito control. I mean, there's all these things that the living systems do it. You know, why wouldn't we as greedy people want living systems to do all our work rather than mechanical systems? 
It seems and, like. Yeah. And keep us healthy. There was a study that was just re- released uh, last month in Finland uh, of children three, four and five years old. And what they did is they they put a farm and they allowed the, the young children to farm for a month in their schoolyard and dig in the soil. And then they did an analysis of their bio, their biome and their immune system and found that there were improvements in their immune system relative to children that didn't have access to the, the farming and garden o- only after a month, just having access to, <clears throat> you know, the or- microorganisms that live in the soil and on plants had a positive impact on the, on the little children and their immune systems. Yeah. I think there's a, I mean, we, we tend to moan a little bit, but I think the the positive side is our systems are so resilient and you know, if, if you do anything like halfway decent, there's there's incredible recovery. You see that over and over again. We just need to like give nature a little bit of a foothold and a chance, and uh, all the systems improve. So I don't want to sound like an old bitter guy. Get off my lawn, you know, Stephen. Yeah, yeah. No Clint Eastwood here. <clears throat> Um, so in addition to like, you know, managing mosquitoes and making our lives better and improving our health, what about climate change? <clears throat> what do you think Green Roofs can do to help us with the negative impacts of the climate crisis? What, what thoughts have you on that? Yeah, I mean, that's climate is a complex thing, so I'm not a climatologist. But I think that when, when we start to restore any area to what they call pre-development hydrology, you know, that's... That's a big deal. So uh, rather than water running into pipes, having water evapotranspirate creates cooling. Um, there are so many things that green roofs do well. Um, and when you look at, you know, like where I live, a city like Baltimore, which used to infiltrate, you know, half its water into aquifers, and now it's probably under 5% going into aquifers. So all that, all that stuff has to do with, with cooling. Water is an incredible cooling mechanism as it evaporates. And when you take that away, you're heating your, I think one of, one of your early slides I remember was that curve of, of the heat island effect in cities. And that, I don't know what it was in centigrade. I think it was seven degrees Fahrenheit, but a couple, two or three degrees centigrade. And, and the amount of energy it takes to, to create that cooling that's unnecessary out in the country. I think Chicago said it was the equivalent of one nuclear power plant to cool Chicago compared to the suburbs. Just because they don't have the water evapotranspirating yeah. in the buildings and roads and streets. Shade, shade from the trees, uh, mm-hmm. water evaporating, those natural systems being taken away when they have to be replaced by mechanical systems, <clears throat> there, there's a climate cost. Oh yeah, and a, and an economic cost. Absolutely, yeah. It's funny because for years, you know, and largely because of health, right? I mean, when cities first, uh, you know, started to grow rapidly in the mid 18th century, you know, there was cholera, and there was, you know, there was no real waste management, and people were, you know, choking in their own awful and stuff, and rivers were incredibly polluted, and so you know, with the advent of the modern wastewater treatment systems and all the pipes that have been put in over hundreds of years. It was all about get the water away from the people, get water, get sewage. And it was a, it was because of the health, because of health considerations primarily because people were dying. 
And now in this, now we're beginning to realize, geez, we maybe we should hold on to this water and use it to grow plants. And that is actually going to be what uh, supports our health as we move into the future. It's almost mm. the flip side of the, of the coin, if you think about it that way. Yeah, I think, and I think that the subtext of that is no generation is trying to destroy everything. We're working with the technology we have and the problems in front of us. And I think to look back and say that, you know, these were bad people, if they're just working with, they're doing the best they can, you know, and I, and I think it's, it's really good to move forward. And like you said, they were addressing a problem with the technology they had. We have to use all our technology and thinking now to solve our set of problems. And mm -hmm. then, and then, uh, so I think that's, uh, that keeps me hopeful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I wasn't saying that they're bad people, but yeah, they were trying to deal with the issues that were front and center for them. And now we've got this, oh my gosh, you know, our cities are overheating. We've got, we've got drought problems. We've got heat waves coming in and, and this is only going to intensify according to all the climate models for many cities. So we, we really need to think differently about water and storm water. You know, we need our regulations and our engineering to catch up with the, the changes that have been happening. And I think you put that very well. Um, what, uh, what do you think about the future? You said you're hopeful. What do you think about the future for green roofs in North America and, and what might be needed? You know, if you had to pick a couple of things that you wave your magic wand, what, what would they be? Well, I think it all starts with knowledge. I think it's pretty easy to look at climate systems, you know, and, and it's already mapped out the different parts of North America have different climates, you know, climate regions. And I think ideally you would have some sort of regional research center, very much like University of Melbourne has for Melbourne. And, and that would produce the ideal set of plants for those ecosystem services for that region. So that would replace the model of thinking there is a group of six plants that belong in every zip code in the US and Canada. You know, and so I think that would be really strong if we had some sort of public-private partnership to produce, uh, and I know you've been working toward that, to produce that knowledge so we could make these machines much more high-functioning. Um, and, and then I think from a public policy point of view that we understand the value of putting plants into landscape that are really these photosynthetic living machines and, and understand their true value in the urban setting and, and, and do the economics to model that so that public policy can follow that, uh, that pathway. So those are two things that come to the top mm -hmm. of my head. Plants are much more than aesthetics. They mm. have so much more to offer. Um, that's often their ecosystem functions like evapotranspiration aren't really captured in our market mechanisms, current market framework. Yeah, I think we started off as human beings with, when we first interacted with plants, they were, they were food and medicine. And then at some point in the relatively recent uh, evolution, they became ornamental. We started using plants for beauty, probably in the, you know, the, the Dutch bulb thing where they, you know, they became like a bulb was worth a house at one time in the 1700s. And now I think that 
the third use of plants that's getting exploited is them as the living machines, the, the functional horticulture. And as a, as a nurseryman, we have to grow plants different for functional horticulture than we would for ornamental horticulture. There's a different kind of growing and fertility program and hardening off and shipping and all those things. So that's all just kind of coming into play. Um, and you know, that's, that's kind of what my work in China was, was trying to set up nurseries that are growing for green infrastructure, which is very different growing than growing for ornamental or food. So all these little um, skills get different with every kind of, just like a, a corn farmer is not gonna easily transition to growing uh, ornamental plants. It's a, it's a different skill set, different infrastructure. That is really interesting uh, at the uh, evolution of our relationship from, with plants from, you know, originally being foods and medicines. And for many people still, I think that's probably the case around the world and particularly indigenous um, cultures, then becoming ornamental within Western culture. And now maybe shifting back towards living machines that provide some of the services that we are ultimately going to need to be able to address climate change and and urban growth. Have you got any uh, final thoughts for us before we uh, say farewell? Well, I think just think if we all work together, we're stronger than we're individual. And I appreciate the long-term relationship with you, Stephen, and your organization, Green Roof of Healthy Cities. And that's, uh, we're all made stronger by pulling, pulling together and not competing. And because uh, the goals are bigger than us. So I'll, I'll leave it with that. The goals are bigger than us. Thank you so much, Ed, for your time. Thank you for your leadership uh, and your work at Emerino Farms and your rewilding and your passion for the industry. And I wish you very much, uh, very well into the new year. Uh, and thank you so much again, Ed, for your, uh, for your contribution to our, our podcast series. Pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. That's, uh, that's all with uh, Ed Snodgrass. Uh, he is a, an incredible uh, human being, a uh, deep thinker, fifth generation farmer. He walks the talk in terms of his uh, operations and uh, he just has a fantastic um, attitude towards the future and he's hopeful and uh, it's fantastic. Emery Knoll Farms, Green Roof Plants. Check out their website uh, for additional information about what they have to offer. And thank you very much for your uh, for listening uh, with us today.